our listeners to this special episode of Running Need Radio. My name is Thomas Falcone, Communications Associate with the Running Need Society. And I'm very pleased today to be joined by Dr. Andy Summers, an Associate Professor of Law at the London School of Economics Department of Law, where he teaches tax law and policy, as well as private law. Dr. Summers, good morning. Well, good morning to me, but good afternoon to you over there in London. <laughs> Hi, great to be here. Thanks. Yes, thank you so much for uh, joining us. We uh, really appreciate it. So I guess before we get started, I have to kind of ask you, as a tax law professor, why do so many law students and really even some lawyers, why do they recoil in fear at the very idea of taking a tax 101 course or introduction to tax law course in in law school? What's the what's the source of this great anxiety? <laughs> That's a great question. Yeah. Yeah. Um... Well, I think lawyers are not usually people who are scared off by technical material or, or complex um, interpretation of legislation. And definitely some Tax 101 courses include that. But I don't think that's probably the dimension that's, um, that people find intimidating. It's maybe more the interaction between those technical questions and, and actually these much bigger questions that tax um, brings in from across the whole social sciences and so there are these deep philosophical questions um, about how we organize our society and the role of tax in things like questions about distribution of resources and so on and then you've got of course the whole um, economic side of um, of tax policy making um, and maybe the worry that some people have that they're going to be asked to do things with maths which might be a scary proposition for <laughs> um, for lawyers so it's probably it's probably that fact that you do have to be a bit of an all-rounder I think to um, to study tax um, and, and you need to be good on that technical detail but you probably need to be interested in in some other um, disciplinary areas as well. So is that why you got interested in tax? And is that sort of why you think lawyers should care about tax policy because there is a, a generalist sort of um, angle to it? Yeah, I think that's right. That's definitely um, part of my motivation. I mean, speaking about just in terms of my own career, I actually started um, by studying mainly um, private law subjects. I actually did my PhD on um, contract law and torts and assessment of damages. So not so not actually um, tax, but definitely um, in that space of um, quite technical legal subjects. And when I joined LSE, which is obviously an institution that's, um, well, it's the London School of Economics, and it's um, and it's very much a broad kind of social science institution, and, and they encourage more interdisciplinary work. I kind of um, had been interested in tax for um, for quite some time before I started at LSE, but that was a real kind of prompt to think, hey, this is something that I could actually develop more as a research agenda and I could try to bring some of my technical um, understanding of the law to bear on these bigger social science questions that you know my colleagues at LSE um, are particularly interested in and I did feel like there was a gap there uh, at the time that I was starting to um, get interested in this stuff you know um, probably well five to ten years ago now but um, with particularly the area of taxation of wealth, which is, um, you know, where uh, our report uh, of late has come, come out of this um, interest. Um, I was thinking that that's particularly an area where 
the tax affairs of the wealthy are um, sometimes so complicated that although it's an area of great public policy interest from kind of philosophers and economists and other people trying to study this, that sometimes they got scared off by the the technical details. So you were asking why why do law students get scared mm-hmm. of uh, tax sometimes? I think other disciplines definitely get scared by the legal complexity and the technicality of, of topics, particularly when you're talking about the tax affairs of the wealthy, which do get very complicated. And so I thought there's an, there's an opportunity here to, um, to try and combine those areas of expertise and, that, and actually make a, um, a useful contribution in that area. Well, you mentioned wealth taxes and that particular area of tax policy has really fe- featured predominantly in the public conversation recently. So if you can continue to kind of set the stage for me here, what exactly is a wealth tax and how is it different from other taxes that in day-to-day life we may be more familiar with, say, an income tax or a sales tax? Sure. So um, a wealth tax in its kind of simplest um, definition is a tax on the ownership of wealth. Uh, And so the amount of tax that you pay depends on the amount of net wealth that you have. In other words, all of the asset, the value of all of the assets that you own minus the value of all of the debt. So, for example, if you own a house with a mortgage, then your net wealth would be the value of that house minus the outstanding um, mortgage debt. And what we have in mind when we talk about a wealth tax is a fairly broad based tax on ownership of wealth. In other words, not on any particular asset, like not just a tax on housing wealth, for example, but a tax on your on an individual's total net wealth. So all of the assets that they own of whatever type minus all of the debts. Um, and that's quite a novel proposition in the UK and also um, the US and um Canada, none of these um, countries have currently a wealth tax in those, uh, according to that definition. But they do obviously have other taxes on wealthy people or, you know, taxes on wealth in the kind of um, broader sense. And like you mentioned, um, income tax. Obviously, we could think of income tax partly as a tax on the wealthy in the sense that um, individuals who receive income from the assets that they own can likely pay income tax on that or they might pay capital gains tax or if they die they might pay inheritance tax or the estate tax um, so there are various taxes that we already have that are on wealth in a broad sense but what we meant in this project when we were talking about a wealth tax was that specific idea of using wealth as the definition of the tax base so a tax on the ownership um, of wealth You've sort of alluded to it already, but you did recently serve, of course, as a commissioner of this uh, UK Wealth Tax Commission. What can you tell me about the findings of the commission's report, which I think came out just uh, about a month ago? Yeah, that's right. So we released our final report uh, at the start of December. And um, if you're interested, you can um, look it up uh, on our website, which is uh, www.ukwealth.tax. And um, this was a project that we started about six months previously. So it it came together quite fast, given the volume of work that um, That that we were doing. Yeah, it was probably um, probably should have taken us about two to three years, but we managed to cram it into a (laughs) shorter space of time. We thought thought that the time was right. And of course, we're all locked down and things anyway. So, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, but um, 
the, the impetus for this was actually the, um, the sort of advent of the coronavirus crisis and just anticipating that um, taxes on wealth in that broad sense that I described was something that certainly in the UK already had been a kind of gathering a bit of momentum or becoming more prominent on the public policy agenda. Um, um, and it was it was quite obvious that coronavirus was potentially going to accelerate that process of um, of debates about taxes on the wealthy. Um, and yet this idea of a wealth tax specifically, the tax on the ownership of wealth, hadn't really been considered in the UK for nearly 50 years. There, there was a, a major piece of work and a book on wealth taxes in the 1970s. Um, and since then, really not very much um, discussion at all of this type of tax. And yet it is the type of tax that has been um, implemented in quite a few other European countries. There used to be more European countries that had a wealth tax you know, um, over the past 20 years than have now. Um, but it was never, uh, it was something that was, um, that was bound to be discussed in this context. And yet we felt there wasn't really a solid evidence base on which to make judgments about whether a wealth tax um, would be um, desirable and feasible um, for the UK. So that was the sort of task that we set ourselves um, to really examine a the idea of a wealth tax from kind of all angles, um, people for, involving people from multiple disciplines and also involving tax practitioners as well as um, academics and, and policymakers. Um, so we, we, we commissioned all of these um, evidence papers on different aspects of uh, a wealth tax covering um questions of the sort of in principle question of um, the economic case for and against the wealth tax what's the distribution of wealth look like currently in the uk um, what have been the international experiences of wealth taxes and then a series of papers on design of a, of a wealth tax and so building on that um, evidence base um, we then put together this final report and what we concluded in the end actually uh, we reached two quite different sets of conclusions, interestingly, depending on whether the proposition is for a one-off wealth tax, um, which, which we saw as specifically a response to the coronavirus crisis, or whether you have in mind an annual um, wealth tax, which would be reassessed each year. So just to sort of clarify and emphasise what the difference between those is, because this was this was quite critical to the, the way um, um, that, that we concluded in our report. Um, so one-off wealth tax means that you just have one assessment date. Uh, and we didn't say exactly when that should be. Um, but at some point in the future, if the government decides that it needs to um, raise revenue um, in, 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 you know, in a substantial amount, um, quite likely as a result of the um, crisis in, in public finances that um, the coronavirus is um, sort of reeking on on many countries, but the UK in particular, um, would set um, a an assessment date, which is the date when individuals' wealth is valued, and the tax would be levied on that basis at a certain percentage of the um, wealth. But there would then be no more future assessments. Um, so. If someone's wealth changes after the assessment date, that's not going to have any impact on their um, tax liability. And there is actually um, a series of precedents for, for having a, 
uh, a one-off wealth tax of this kind in 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 other countries uh, mostly following the major world wars um so that these are often tied to large public finance um crises and major events that's partly because it's the scale of those crises that kind of necessitates this kind of big um thinking but it also is because um those events provide a a reason which makes the tax credibly one off um and and the reason why that's important and why that's very distinct from an annual wealth tax is because with an annual wealth tax you have a reassessment every year which means that if your wealth changes in the subsequent year then your your wealth tax bill will go up or down as a result of that and what that introduces um is uh, the potential for a whole lot more what e- economists call behavioral responses um to the tax so people adjusting mm-hmm. the way that they structure their wealth or the uh, amount that they save or invest in anticipation of the next um assessment and those problems broadly speaking are significantly reduced or eliminated altogether when what you're focused on is a is a one off um wealth tax so our key finding was essentially um we think that um in the uk if the government does decide that it needs to raise taxes and and we didn't take a position on on whether it should be doing that or on what time scale but if um the government decides that it um wants and needs to raise taxes that it should do that using a one off wealth tax rather than the kind of conventional suite of um tax rises that that people might be more familiar with like rises in the rate of income tax or the UK's sales tax the VAT um and and that that was better from a, from the perspective of economic efficiency um and it was also fairer in the sense that it more accurately reflected people's ability to pay um uh, this kind of extra contribution um following mm-hmm. covid-19 um but by contrast we thought that there was not a strong case in all in all for an annual um wealth tax and that instead the uk should focus on reforming its existing taxes on wealth by which i mean our inheritance tax capital gains tax and those taxes that that a lot of people in the uk agree are kind of quite badly broken at the moment it would be better in terms of a longer term structural reform to focus on reforming those existing taxes but a one off wealth tax would be a way in the shorter term of bringing in a large amount of revenue in a way that was fair and economically um efficient so that was the um the key distinction that we drew you know it's it's really the commission's conclusions and findings on this one off wealth tax that i find the most interesting um do you think there are any rule of law concerns though about governments suddenly um imposing taxation um on certain segments of the population as i think sort of a one off wealth tax might be characterized as sure yeah that's a, that's a great question and and one that we do address in some um detail in in our report we have some things to say about the the idea in particular that a one off wealth tax might in some sense be regarded as retrospective or even if it's not technically retrospective in the sense of having an assessment date for example prior to the date of announcement that it might nevertheless kind of interfere with people's um legitimate expectations about the holding of their property and what they can do um with it so i mean there's a few different things to to unpack here um the first i think relates to 
um, the impact of a wealth tax on people's property rights, which might be one sort of source of um, concern, particularly from the, uh, a kind of legalistic perspective. Um, and so I think you know, where we come down on this is that a wealth tax, like other taxes, is not um, it's not levied against a specific item of property. And so it's quite different from a, a, a situation like a compulsory purchase where the government is asserting rights to a specific asset. Um, instead, it's levied by reference to wealth rather than on wealth. Um, and mm. so you can pay the tax out of other sources of income um, or, or out of liquid assets other than the ones on which the, um, the tax is directly charged. Um, right. And so in that sense, um, it's no more, we would say, an interference with people's property rights than, um, than any other tax that's obviously um you know compulsory compulsorily um imposed but not against a specific um item of property there is a worry that that flows from that that okay well although it's not in a legal sense levied against the the property if the amount of tax is such that someone isn't able to pay it out of their income then what if they're required to sell their their property and in that sense it, it could feel like a more indirect um but still an imposition on um people's holdings of property and, and we refer to that as the kind of liquidity concern what if someone is asset rich but cash poor and can't afford mm -hmm. to pay the tax they might be required to sell some of their assets potentially at short notice and so we we discuss in the report some some policy solutions to that um issue we try and to quantify in the uk context how many people would likely face a kind of liquidity constraint but then for those individuals we essentially recommend a mechanism whereby they would be able to um, defer so not avoid the payment of the tax altogether but defer it pay the tax over a longer um, time period so that people wouldn't be required to or effectively forced to sell any assets um, in order to um, pay the tax um, but then so paper millionaires sorry so-called paper millionaires. Mm, exactly. And so, I mean, this is a worry, particularly in the context of, well, sometimes there's a few different people that, that, that one might have in mind as a concern on liquidity. One is the kind of granny in a big house, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So what about the, the, the you know, it's, it's often for some reason seems to be the old lady who, um, who lives in a, um, a house that she's lived in all of her life, but now is living off her pension and, and how will she pay the tax? So that's one category. But the other kind of paper millionaire that you're um, mentioning, yeah, the, the kind of the business owner as well. So what about the private business owner who's reinvested everything that they have into their business? I mean, this comes with the added concern that these are people potentially kind of driving forward the economy and, and what mm -hmm. if they have to break up their business in order to to pay the tax so we're alive to those kinds of um concerns and in the report we we discuss some um some policy solutions to that problem so that we don't think it would be necessary for anyone to um to sell those kinds of illiquid assets um in order to pay the tax but uh, the the other dimension to this i mentioned there's a i think there's a few dimensions to this rule of law um, issue is an element of kind of retrospectivity or interference with legitimate expectations. So, so people might be worried that they say, well, I've saved up all this money. You know, I chose 10 years ago, I chose to save a lot of money rather than spending it all because I was anticipating then being able to spend this in my retirement. 
and now you're levying this one-off wealth tax means that um, you know my my expectations um, for spending these savings are going to be kind of partly um, frustrated, and that's um, and that's unfair. And I think um, it's a super interesting area, uh, one that I'd like to look into. Um, a lot more and is a great topic actually for for lawyers um to think about is this idea of what makes a tax retrospective and what is the what is the the root of that um objection but i i think that my position is that it's not it's not really a clear-cut black and white a tax is retrospective or not um mm -hmm. kind of issue um actually a lot of taxes um, even ones that are formally completely prospective will have the effect of interfering with people's kind of legitimate um, expectations or at least their own kind of subjective plans for the future. So, for example, um, the capital gains tax that we have um, in the UK taxes assets when they're sold, but the amount of tax that's payable depends on the gain that's accrued on that um, asset over the whole time since for as long as you've owned it which may be many years in the past so when we prospectively change a capital gains tax rate actually in practice we're still if you like indirectly um, changing the tax rate that applied to these gains that accrued sometime in the past and generally people don't have an objection to that as being uh, not not on rule of law um, grounds at least even though actually as an interference with someone's sort of plans for the future or expectations it might be just as um, severe so I think um, you know, there are there's always a balance in, in public policy making between if it, you know, if you if you fully respected always or found were constrained by people's existing people's expectations based on the status quo then you could never make any public policy changes uh, on mm -hmm. the other hand if we never um, were willing to um, displace anyone's subjective um, expectations or plans for the future then obviously um, it would be very difficult to make any um, public policy changes um, so there's a there's a balancing um, act here and i think uh, we concluded in relation to a one-off wealth tax given the monumentous um, impact of the coronavirus crisis and the public need potentially to um, to make changes that no one anticipated um, several months ago um, that the balance here was strongly in favor um, of a one-off wealth tax despite um, these potential concerns but I would accept that that's um, an area where there's some room for debate. I'd like to take a step back and, and speak more generally now about sort of jurisprudential matters in regards to taxation. So, I mean, I think that it's fair to characterize tax law within the domain of public law. Maybe I'm wrong there. Maybe that's a separate conversation. But assuming that, that <laughs> I'm, I'm correct with that characterization, why do you think that those interested in the rule of law should pay attention to tax cases to come before the courts in common law jurisdictions? Well, I think um, tax is a great uh, interface, as I um, mentioned earlier, between um, these issues that in some respects people regard as um, technical points of law, um, but that nevertheless always um, 
these cases involve an individual uh, uh, on one side and typically the tax authority on behalf of the state on the other side. So I think um, it's right in that sense to characterise these as um, public law issues. Um, but they are classically issues that raise that tension between individuals' rights and um, uh, public policies that have been um, typically in the case of taxes passed in legislation through a democratic process, but there may be some then some question about the interpretation um, of those um, pieces of legislation. And so it's it's a kind of classic site, um, one of one of, a, of many, where um, you're having to weigh those um, the scope of those private rights. Um, against um, well, firstly, what you uh, what the court decides is the um, intention of the legislature, um, but bearing in mind the kind of broader public purposes that the um, that the tax system is trying to serve. So I, I think um, you know, it's constantly going to bring up some of those acute tensions that we see uh, in some rule of law um, questions within public law. So sticking then, I guess, with our rule of law theme, um, for, for those of our loyal listeners curious about the intersection of tax cases and the rule of law, can you perhaps share some pertinent English cases that may be of particular interest in this area? Sure, yeah. So um, <clears throat> I guess the one which um, which lots of tax lawyers know whether or not they're from um, the UK is the famous um, Duke of Westminster case, not least just because Duke of Westminster is um, sort of prominent person in um, British public life, one of the um, wealthiest individuals in um, the UK, features in the Sunday Times um, rich list and, and, and has an interesting, uh, the kind of Duke of Westminster dynasty has this um, uh, quite interesting history. And one of the um, cases that everyone knows is about when um, the Duke of Westminster uh, effectively tried to arrange um, his affairs in such a way as to reduce the amount of tax that was payable um, as a result of the way that he structured services with his gardener. Um, and it's quite a kind of colourful um, case in terms of its facts and obviously because it features this prominent individual. Um, but the thing that people know it for in terms of the um, going back to this rule of law issue is that in the Duke of Westminster case, the court took a very um, firm position, if you like, on the idea that uh, on this question of tax avoidance, that so long as someone was acting essentially within the um, direct letter of the legislation, then they were free to um, to arrange their affairs in that way. And even if the tax authority didn't really like the effect that that yielded in terms of um, a reduction in tax, that that was um, that the, the private system was essentially entitled um to do that. So that's what the Duke of Westminster case is known for. Um, I think actually, although that's a very well-known case and remains kind of um, one that, that, that people, as I say, um, sort of uh, tend to be aware of, there's actually been a very significant retreat from that um, approach within um, the English courts in terms of um, their attitude, if you like, towards tax avoidance. Um, and that kind of comes from, I think, two sources, actually. I mean, one is a more general um, move 
towards um, a more purposive approach to statutory interpretation. So, um, you know, the whole the whole approach to statutory interpretation, this is not just in the tax context, has moved much more toward looking at the um, broad intention mm -hmm. of the legislature rather than the specific wording of the statute, which means that certain techniques in terms of um, taxpayer ways of arranging their affairs that would work under a literal interpretation of the statute just don't work under a purposive interpretation and that um, or a more purposive interpretation and that doesn't um, you know that's that's a shift that's happened across the spectrum not just in tax law but but within tax specifically um, probably over the past, 20 years but certainly accelerated over the last 10 years there has become a generally much more um skeptical sh um shall we say um more hostile frankly um atmosphere towards um tax avoidance that probably people are aware of from mm. just political debates but that has actually I think more indirectly rather than directly, um, made an impact on the way in which um, tax avoidance or potential tax avoidance cases are approached um, by the courts, such that um, within tax specifically, there are a series of cases um, that essentially, um, I, I think, are broadly consistent with this idea of taking a more purposive interpretation of the statute, but which actually in some ways takes that much further and pr provides more specific rules for, for example, considering a series of separate steps together. So the court will say, well, although you did these five separate steps, you know, because they're preordained, essentially we're just going to treat you as having gone straight from step one to step five. Uh, and so, you know, this doesn't have the tax effect that you thought it did. Those sorts of um, uh, approach to... Um, tax law now in in the uk is really quite different from the duke of westminster case so so that's i like the case because it, you know because of its history and because of the kind of colorful characters and the story that it tells um but really that's that's actually quite far from um where we are these days in terms of um the english approach to um to the cases well, Dr. Summers, I, I feel that there's so much more that we could talk about. And with the, our conversation was so wide ranging, there's like 10 podcasts we could probably <laughs> reduce out of, our, out of our conversation here. But I want to thank you again very, very much for taking the time to join us here on Running Mead Radio. And uh, we'll be sure to continue to follow your work with uh, great interest. Great. Thank you very much for having me. Cheers. Take care.